In our last episode of the podcast, we saw the Acadia colony fall apart. Champlain, Lescarbeau, Pontgrave, Bayoncourt, Poutrincourt, and all these other notable characters working under the auspices of Dumont, who held all the titles to New France, were forced to pack it in and abandon Pointe Royale, not because of their own doing, but because of Dumont's businesses falling apart. His hold over the St. Lawrence, gone. Poutrincourt and others would uh, spend the next couple years looking to get back to Port Royal and restarting Acadia. But Samuel de Champlain and Pontgrave, they'd be looking further north. They were looking at the St. Lawrence, place they had been before. And back in France, Champlain took counsel with Dumont, and the two of them ruminated over what went wrong, why did everything fall apart. As it turns out, the price of furs had skyrocketed, uh, meaning that there was far more people willing to risk their lives and their fortunes to go out and get these furs. And uh, the primary place to get these furs would be inside of Dumont's Monopoly, St. Lawrence, New France. These were where the best furs were going to be found in North America. And this, this wave of new traders completely overwhelmed Dumont's operations, including traders from Amsterdam, not even within the French world. And so by the end of 1607, his entire company, all of his operations were down to three ships. And so his monopoly was unenforceable. But that wouldn't matter. Because of all the new interests in obtaining furs, the powers that be in France, the various merchants, probably a lot from Saint-Malo, Jacques Cartier's old town, uh, petitioned the king to get the monopoly revoked. So come the end of 1607, Dumont has uh, next to no power in the St. Lawrence, almost no assets into, in attaining furs, and his monopoly has been canceled. But he had other assets that he could move around. And prices at the time, well, Samuel Elliott Morrison, the historian, notes that around the, the year 1600 to 1610, the period we're talking about, the markup on furs were 10 to 20 times the cost of obtaining them. So a trader in the St. Lawrence in the spring, making his way back home by fall, was able to sell a single pelt for 10 to 20 times as much effort and expense it took to getting that fur. Now, if you're into investing, you know that getting a 10 to 20 times return on your money within a year is, is insane. It's, it's wonderful. Uh, making a move such as that, an investment just like that, you'd be bragging about it the rest of your life as you're sitting on your yacht with your uh, pet monkey. And so Dumont was able to shuffle around his assets. And being a close friend of the king, as well as Champlain, also a young protege of the king, they were able to secure a short-term monopoly over the St. Lawrence. Not like before, not with all the pomp and frills and titles to this large, vast area. Just a monopoly over the trade along the one river, the St. Lawrence. And perhaps this would be just enough to turn a profit and ramp up operations again. Now, Dumont, some years previously, was having a conversation with Champlain, deciding where to start a colony. Dumont, uh, who spent some time in the St. Lawrence, thought it was terribly cold there. He didn't, he didn't care for it. And so that led to the founding of the Acadia colonies, Saint-Croix and Port-Royal. Champlain, uh, meanwhile, had always wanted to start a colony in the St. Lawrence, because that's where you could find a chokehold in the river, control the trade going up and down it, and finally push out all their European rivals. Champlain had mapped the St. Lawrence some years before, and decided that somewhere in the vicinity of an area the French called Quebec, the St. Lawrence narrowed enough that they could have command of the river. And of course, the word Quebec probably comes from a native word for narrows in a river. And so a superior understanding of geography 
was Champlain's first piece of the puzzle. The second piece of the puzzle was to develop superior relationships with the natives. He had met the clans of the Innu before that controlled the trade at Tadoussac, where the native monopoly over the supply of furs was being funneled from the middle of the continent in the northern part of the continent out to the St. Lawrence. And he had met natives in other places. He knew how they worked. He knew what they understand to be alliances. He, he understood native concepts of what Europeans would have called a treaty. And he figured if he could establish a solid relationship with the natives and have a foothold with some sort of settlement at a narrow in, in the St. Lawrence River, he would be in a position of strength. He could grow a small colony and come to control all of the trade. Now, this move from Acadia to Quebec, uh, the famed historian of New France, W.J. Eckley, uh, claims is the first move in westward expansion, famously undertaken by U the United States in the 19th century. Eccles claims here we are in the 17th century, and the French are moving inland with a 200-year head start. I would argue, yes, uh, the French are now moving westward because of Champlain, but they're not expanding, not yet anyway. Very few actual people on the ground, very few Frenchmen actually living on the North American continent. Dumont and Champlain and Pointe Grave, they scrounge up a couple dozen worse-for-the-wear men and boys, and despite their promise to the king and to the church that Quebec would be the beginning of Christianizing the natives of New France, they brought along no clergy. Overall, it is recorded that the men they recruited were of more skill and more use than the rabble that they forced to go to Acadia some years before. But again, in France, people were not begging to go to the New World. It was cold there and strange and mysterious and full of people that they didn't understand. This again makes me wonder why Champlain does it at all. If you uh, listened to a previous episode, you would know by the age of 32, he had the net worth an average Frenchman would have taken uh, 500 years to, of constant saving, saving everything in order to accumulate and a pension from the king. Why? Why, why does he continue to do anything? I'd be sitting on my nice French couch eating a... 17th century version of cheese puffs, or something resembling a Dorito. But that's neither here nor there. Dumont, in early 1608, was able to scrounge up two ships specifically for the settlement of Quebec. One would be commanded by Champlain, and the other one by Pointe Grave, the old sea Santa that we've learned about in previous episodes. Ten years older than Champagne, Champagne, Champlain, a big jolly fellow who could be heard across the waves as he would always be used to call in other ships. And Pontgrave made it to Tadoussac uh, before Champlain did. And there he found a bunch of Basque traders trading without a license from Dumont, taking all the good furs for themselves, of course. Pontgrave demanded some sort of compensation from them, showing his papers, using the king's name to assert his authority. Well, perhaps he wasn't as jolly as he should have been. And the Basque traders opened fire on him uh, from their respective boats using cannon. Pontgrave was injured, three more men were injured, one man was killed, and the Basque traders boarded his ship, took it over, kicked him off his own ship, and said, listen, when we're done trading, we'll give you your ship back. But until then, just hang out along the shore. Perhaps to you, this sounds like pretty good terms, considering what just happened. But when Champlain came by a couple days later, he saw strewn along the St. Lawrence a bunch of injured men, men he knew. He found Pontgrave and everybody else to be in terrible condition, and they would all be destitute if not for Champlain. He gathered up all the wounded men and heard their sorry tale, and then he himself went to confront the Basque traders. Now Champlain must have been 
far more diplomatic than Grave Dupont, or showed up with more men at least, because the Basque traders agreed to a parley. And they had it out. They discussed their issues. Now, Champlain was able to convince them that they indeed uh, were working under a monopoly that was held by Dupont from the French king, and that the Basque traders were in the wrong. The, so, and they agreed to give back the ships that Pontgrave had taken from him, and then that they would spend the rest of their time whaling. Pontgrave, of course, having lost a man, other men injured, including himself, didn't like this arrangement, thought that the Basque traders got off far too easy. And Champlain reminded him, well, you and the Basque traders can have it out in the French courts, not in the St. Lawrence. Pontgrave, a smart man himself, spent a lot of time in the St. Lawrence, many more years than Champlain had at this point, uh, realized that Champ Champlain was right. It, it was time to back down. There'd be another day to fight this battle. Because had they lost any more time or resources, resources, whatever you want to say, this whole operation would fall apart. This was a one-year deal. They needed to turn a profit in order for there to be any future for Dumont's operations. And the key to get any of this off the ground was to make a deal with the Innu at Tadoussac. Fortunately, when Pontgrave and Champlain show up, the Innu recognized the both of them. They had been there years before, like I said, uh, left a good impression. They went to a tobaggy, smoked tobacco with the chiefs, talked business, and they did the same this time. Champlain explained what he wanted to do. And from the native perspective, this looked like a tribe was going to be moving in, very small in number, and would be a new ally for the Innu, who had a very powerful enemy to the south, known as the Iroquois. And so the Innu were pleased when Champlain uh, described where he was going to make a settlement, because that area of the St. Lawrence had been depopulated some decades before, and not enough time had passed to actually fill it in with more people yet. And it was a sort of no-man's land, as certain authors will describe it, between the Iroquois world and the northern Algonquin world, where neither side really controlled it, and neither side was really comfortable living there, being as close to the other. And so in the Innu mind, Champlain would be a new border guard, essentially. And in fact, Quebec, as he planned it, would be in the vicinity of the old settlement of Stadacona, where some of the St. Lawrence natives had lived decades previously in the last century. Landing at Quebec, the men made quick time to build their shelters. Champlain had designed for Quebec a structure similar to the one he designed at Port Royal, where there'd be a number of buildings connected by walls with an inner courtyard that wouldn't appear overtly militaristic and yet would still have the benefit of being close together and walled off. All in all, a couple two-story buildings with palisades around it and a moat around the palisade. Of course, the men had a number of guns and they had a few small cannons to display on second-story openings, warning off any rivals. But, in short order... They had made a wonderful little base of operation. It would have some value to their rivals. And so a locksmith in the colony by the last name of Duval secretly made an arrangement with the Spaniards and the Basque who happened to be at Tadoussac that Duval would find other conspirators and then in some fashion at Quebec kill Samuel de Champlain and hand over for a tidy sum of money the small settlement that Champlain had spent so many years planning and shed so much sweat from his own brow to construct. The conspirators argued whether to murder Champlain right there in his bed or to create some sort of a commotion so that Champlain would come running out of his dwelling and there and then shoot him in the head. However, a friendly captain 
by the name of Captain Lestestu was in Tadoussac, and he had overheard much of the plot. And he snuck away and sailed to Quebec and warned Champlain of what was about to happen. Champlain gathered the few confidants he could trust in his small little colony and hatched a plan to use Le Testu's ship to host a party. Le Testu, pretending he was part of the conspiracy, lured Duval and the others to his own ship, where Champlain and his men were already hiding. Champlain managed to restrain all the conspirators and force a confession out of Duval, who gave away everyone involved in the plot, including people still back in Quebec. This, as you can imagine, took quite some time, and it was getting late into the night. Champlain decided that Duval was to hang for his conspiracy. Quickly, Duval was dragged from the ship and dispatched with. Champlain had his body laid on the ground and had Duval's head cut off, and he put it on a pike. Then he returned to Quebec, woke up everyone in the settlement, and there in front of everyone, he displayed all the conspirators who had been on the boat, restrained and ready for justice to be dealt upon them. And then, of course, he also displayed the head of Duval on a pike. And then as the night wind howled, he outed the sleepy-eyed conspirators who remained in Quebec. Now horrified, Champlain had completely pulled the rug out from under them. They were powerless and seemingly without any hope. Champlain decided that three more men who had been prominent in this conspiracy uh, should be sent back to France and tried before the king, recommending a death sentence for each of them. This would only unhinge the rest of the conspirators and everyone in Quebec a little more. But then in a great show of pity and of power, Champlain pardons everyone else associated with these fellows. And from here on after, the people of Quebec would never question Champlain's governance ever again. After this show of strength, Pontgrave in the fall, confident in Champlain's abilities, returns to France to conduct the company's business. And even the natives seem to have recognized that Champlain had now ascended to a position of assured power. And over the course of the winter of 1608-1609, native groups came to Quebec to see what this, this Frenchman was all about. One band of the Innu, for instance, camped right outside of Quebec, and they fished for eel in the St. Lawrence. That eel they would smoke and dry out. And then they asked Samuel de Champlain to keep the eel for them as they would be coming back later in the winter when they would most assuredly need the supplies. And they trusted him to do so, and he did. As far as relations with the natives are concerned, uh, during this winter, Champlain did everything right. But this was a particularly cold winter, even for the St. Lawrence. Francis Parkman writes, The forest dropped its festal robes, shriveled and faded. They rustled to the earth. The crystal air and laughing sun of October passed away, and November sank upon the shivering waste, chill and somber as a tomb. Around about February 1609, well into winter, it's reported an emaciated group of Innu were on the other side of the St. Lawrence and wanted desperately to get to Quebec, perhaps the same band that had left the eel there before. But the river was full of ice flows, very dangerous. Not something you want to do in February in a wooden canoe. Champlain called out to them and said, Don't, do not try to cross. Find somewhere else to do this. This is too dangerous. This is crazy. You people are mad. This isn't going to work. Please, I beg you, don't, do not cross the river. But the Innu were desperate. And so they went flooding into the river. And Champlain witnessed their canoes being dashed against the ice flows. People being thrown out of their boats 
pulled under the ice and never seen again. Champlain and the French, they rushed to the shoreline and they tried to rescue as, as many of the Innu as they possibly could. The French took the band of Innu into Quebec and mended their wounds and treated their hypothermia. When they all had recovered, he allowed the men to camp outside of Quebec and the women and children to stay inside of the habitation with the Frenchmen. He asked their chief why uh, the Innu didn't settle further south, enjoy better weather, take up farming. And the Innu chief said that he would love to do all of these things, if not for the Iroquois. Staying this far north in this inhospitable land uh, kept them at a fair distance from the Iroquois, and so they were actually safer. Champlain reports that the Innu were so hungry that they actually started to eat the carcass of a frozen dead dog that they found outside of Quebec. After this point, he would take care of them for the rest of the winter. And other native groups would come by, allies with the Innu. And they all complained about the Iroquois. They kept repeating the problems with the Iroquois, how vicious they were. And the natives kept reiterating how the fur trade is really being hampered by their attacks. Champlain, at various points between the fall and the spring, between 1608 and 1609, agreed to be a part of a military alliance against the Iroquois. Early writers would say that Champlain created this alliance against the Iroquois. But it's pretty obvious now to modern historians that the natives, already with the pre-existing battle lines drawn, managed to woo Champlain over to the side of the Innu and the Huron, and against those of the Iroquois, who he has yet to hear one good word about. But Champlain at this point, he was, he was no schmuck. He understood that in the Native American world, the First Nations world, a trading alliance often came with a military component. Now, if you remember way back to our first episode involving Champlain, he was a soldier as a young man. He was a spy. He was a sailor. He had done all these things before he could do them again. He was a bit shy of 40 at the time, but he still had his health about him. And the evidence of that comes from just surviving the winter, uh, the first winter in Quebec. The records show that by May of 1609, springtime, only eight of the 28 settlers who were there in the fall survived. Four of them without sickness. It's assumed that scurvy killed a lot of them. Well, other than the, the guy that Champlain hung himself. So in total, Quebec consisted of eight Frenchmen. The settlement, of course, would grow to become Quebec City that we know today. And the name Quebec would come to apply to the entire province of Quebec in Canada. So a great legacy in the far distance. But nearer to them, a lot of uncertainty. Come June of 1609, Champlain travels to Tadoussac where Pontgrave is with the resupply ships. Now that his friend is back in the neighborhood, Champlain gets excited because now he gets to go exploring again. He gets to go up and down the waterways of the St. Lawrence. Maybe find a new way to get further west. Maybe find a way to get all the way to the Orient. Who knows? But his friend Pontgrave had a letter with him. And he was supposed to report back to France come the end of the summer, beginning of the fall, after the trading was done, in order to make a formal report for Demont and for the king. Remember, he's still an employee of the king. But Champlain knew that over the last fall and winter, he had made promises to the natives. And the military component of those promises has yet to be fulfilled. And he wanted to go back to France with uh, some accomplishments under his belt, other than building a small little colony and having most of the people die under his command. And so he knew here at Tadoussac, among the natives, he would have to be part of organizing an effort to have at least one military engagement with the Iroquois and still have time to make it back to France before the winter. 
Fortunately for him, the message had been received, and the natives had been organizing themselves over the course of the early spring. And now, from far within the North American continent, among the Great Lakes, the Huron come upon the scene. Gaining permission to go across Inulan, they were at Tadoussac, bringing along with them some allies from closely related tribes. Now, the Huron were called the Good Iroquois by many different Algonquian groups, because, as I've mentioned many times before, the Huron were uh, linguistically Iroquois, culturally nearly identical to the Iroquois, but were not politically part of the Iroquois Confederacy. In fact, they were bitter rivals and enemies. At this time, most of the Iroquoian-speaking people, the people who spoke languages that fit in the Iroquois family, were not in the Iroquois Confederacy. And in fact, there were many different confederacies. The Huron, at certain points, were actually larger than the Iroquois. I know all that is confusing. But Champlain picked up very quickly that the Huron were the next chain in the uh, link connecting furs from the inner part of the continent to the outer part of the continent. And that while he could still buy from the Innu and the furs from their own country, if he could tap directly into the Huron, they could be his supplier, and he would cut out one more middleman. So he greatly wanted to impress the Huron. And he did. For one thing, the Huron came from so far away, they hadn't seen European weapons yet. And he impressed them with his gunfire. The Huron were so amazed they wanted to go to Quebec. They wanted to see what this European was all about and what his settlement looked like. The Innu encouraged this, as the Huron and the Innu were in an alliance with one another. And the Innu, of course, now with the French in a new alliance. And they wished to tie it all together. So everybody's on the same page. They'd be stronger that way. So Champlain led the entire war party back to Quebec. And he showed off all his wear and all the European wonders. And in true native fashion, he held a big feast that lasted for days. And used up so much of their own supplies that he had to ask Pontgrave to bring some supplies from Tadoussac that he had stored away. This showed all of the friendly natives more than ever. Champlain understood the politics of the area. They understood the culture. He, he understood manners which is more than we could say for Cartier or any of the French in French Florida or basically almost anyone I've mentioned in the podcast up to this point. Champlain was in the club, and now everyone was more psyched than ever to go into Iroquois country and confront their old enemies. Champlain being fully convinced or duped into thinking that all the trade would work out for the better if the Iroquois would put into their place. They left for the land of the Haudenosaunee, June 18th, 1609. 20 Frenchmen in a shallop, and what would amount to a hundred native canoes full of warriors. Eventually, they reached the mouth of a river off the St. Lawrence. Champlain had spotted this river some years before during his first trip to the St. Lawrence. But now they were going to head south down it, or up it, I should say. And he ended up naming this river after the real power behind the throne of France at the time, Cardinal Richelieu. And this is the Richelieu River. And wouldn't you know it, it opened up into this beautiful lake. Champlain couldn't believe his eyes. Marvelous, clear, crisp waters with gentle waves and cool breezes and beautiful birds fluttering about. David Hackett Fisher writes, On all his many maps, this lake was the only place where he put his name on the land. July 14, 1609, Samuel D. Champlain enters Lake Champlain, which is a wonderful lake, by the way. I went to college up in Plattsburgh, and there's a great beach Right off to the, the east side of Plattsburgh, you just follow the coastline down a little ways, get out of the town. Great white sand beach down there. I have no idea what the name of it is, but it seems like only the locals know about it. Check it out sometime. 
Um, as far as upstate New York is concerned, it's one of the best lakes we have. And it's so far north, it hasn't been ruined by those folks from New York City who like to buy up all the real estate and uh, send the prices through the roof. Anywho, Champlain and the natives, they travel maybe as far south as sighting Ticonderoga at the very base of Lake Champlain. A couple interesting things to note here. Ticonderoga is well into New York State. Again, Champlain is U.S. history. And curious enough, in this very same year, Henry Hudson, working for the Dutch this time, is actually going up the river, now named after him, the Hudson River, and some of his folks may have made it as far north as Cahos Falls. Which means that uh, the Dutch, under an English commander, and the French, in modern-day terms, were like a 40-45 minute drive away from one another, if the Northway existed back then. But it would be years before anybody realized how close they came to meeting one another. This also says some curious things about the Haudenosaunee, the Iroquois Confederacy, and particularly the Mohawk. For one thing, Henry Hudson, uh, coming up by Troy, Albany, some of his men perhaps as far north as Cohoes, was in Mohegan territory. Not Mohegan, Mohegan territory, as far as we can tell. And so the Mohawk didn't extend as far east as to have total control of the Hudson River yet. And yet, the native Champlain was with make it very clear that once they were on Lake Champlain, they were in Mohawk territory, or at least Iroquois territory. And so for you fans of Iroquois history, while it appears that the Iroquois did not have command of the Hudson River just yet, the Mohegan being in their way, uh, their realm extended clear up through what is now New York State, and perhaps all the way into Canada, probably falling just short of the St. Lawrence. And speaking of those Iroquois, this Algonquin-Huron alliance, with the French tagging along, were spotted, of course. And the Iroquois assembled a war party to confront them. And when the two sides came to face one another, it was already very late in the day. The natives shouting from the trees and from the canoes with threats of violence and descriptions of how they will torture their captives after they are victorious. It was decided that both sides would set up camp for the night. And in the morning, blood would be shed. Champlain witnessed both sides very quickly constructing a barricaded camp among the trees some distance from one another and making great fires in the center with dancing and singing, each side trying to pump up their own warriors and create a little psychological torture for their enemies. In my last season episode, where I mention this battle, I give it to you from a fictionalized Iroquois point of view. But now I'm going to read Champlain's actual written account of what he experienced the first time he battled the Iroquois. And so we join Champlain the morning of the battle as he and his native allies rush out of their boats to face their enemy. As soon as we landed, our Indians began to run some 200 yards towards their enemies, who stood firm and had not yet noticed my white companions, who went off into the woods with some Indians. Our Indians began to call me with loud cries and to make way for me they divided into two groups, and put me ahead some twenty yards, and I marched on until I was within some thirty yards of the enemy, who as soon as they caught sight of me, halted and gazed at me, and I at them. When I saw them make a move to draw their bows upon us, I took aim with my arquebus, and shot straight at one of the three chiefs, and with this shot two fell to the ground, and one of their companions was wounded, who died thereof a little later. I had put four bullets into my arquebus, 
As soon as our people saw the shot so favorable for them, they began to shout so loudly that one could not have heard it thunder. And meanwhile, the arrows flew thick on both sides. The Iroquois were much astonished that two men should have been killed so quickly. Although they were provided with shields made of cotton thread woven together in wood, which were proof against their arrows, this frightened them greatly. As I was reloading my arquebus, one of my companions fired a shot from within the woods, which astonished them again so much that, seeing their chiefs dead, they lost courage and took to flight, abandoning the field and their fort, and fleeing into the depths of the forest, whither I pursued them and laid low still more of them. Our Indians also killed several and took ten or twelve prisoners. The remainder fled with the wounded. Of our Indians, fifteen or sixteen were wounded with arrows, but these were quickly healed. The Huron and the Algonquin had used Champlain perfectly. He was a pawn in their game, and he was a complete surprise weapon. The Iroquois had never seen firearms. The shock of just hearing an arquebus go off for the first time was overwhelming. It could only be compared to thunder. It's stopping power, killing men instantly, whereas an arrow would wound and cause a slow death or slow recovery. And just the appearance of metal armor and a strange white man with a huge bushy beard. In Iroquois culture, metal up until this point was believed to belong to mythical beings who made up the composition of the planet Earth. And a creature so white could only be a ghost. This would be a complete victory for Champlain and his allies. But give it a couple years. The Iroquois will adjust. For you know it, white skin and gunpowder won't be as scary as it once was. And the Iroquois will be more feared than they ever were before, as they will quickly adjust. One thing to note is that it appears in these earliest records that the Iroquois fought in boxed-in formations with wooden shields, like a Greek phalanx, protecting themselves, shielding themselves from stone and bone and wood weapons. Very effective. Now, the introduction of gunpowder caused the Iroquois, over the ensuing years, to spread out. You see the common raid-and-retreat guerrilla tactics that the Iroquois will be known for in these epic colonial wars between the uh, British and the French they don't exist yet. The Iroquois fight in tight formations. It's going to be Champlain who starts the turning of the tides in that respect. Traditional historians mark this as the moment that the French started their wars with the Iroquois and led to a bunch of different native groups having trouble with the Iroquois. But modern historians realize that, again, Champlain was a piece to be moved in the chess game of native relations. Little did he know that this game has been going on for a very, very long time. He had changed the nature of the battles, but the battle lines were still where they were before he showed up. And here's a small bit of evidence I forgot to bring up that happened earlier in this year, 1609. Over the winter, and sometime by spring, Champlain in Quebec had obtained an Iroquois captive from one of the various Algonquian groups who came by. And he sent that Iroquois captive back to her people with a message of peace offering an alliance, offering a trade arrangement, and he had heard no word from them. Perhaps she was intercepted. But either way, uh, before this battle happened, he did make an attempt to find a peaceful resolution to all the native differences. As the war party hit the first villages back in Inu territory, the women, so eager to get their hands on the captives and the scalps, 
rushed to the shoreline, some of them stripped naked, to swim out to the boats so they could have their first pick. Uh, once again, if I, as I've noted many times before, the Innu women would be far more enthusiastic about torturing the Iroquois than the Innu men. In fact, the women would wear the, the body parts of the dead Iroquois like necklaces. Champlain himself no stranger to gore, having been through war and uh, probably witnessed public torture as sentencing uh, for various crimes. But the way the natives did it was different. It was just a different form of torture than Europeans were used to. And the Europeans found it unseemly. Champlain witnessed one uh, Mohawk warrior being tortured to death. I believe he was bound and tied to a tree. And he found that he could, he could not watch any longer. And he asked the Innu if he could shoot the guy in the head. Put him out of his misery. He was already too far gone. And they laughed at him and they sent him away. They said, no, no, this is, this is our, our captive. This, we will enjoy our torture of him until he is no more. And so Champlain decided to walk away. As he was walking away, the natives said, All right, Champlain, go for it. We don't want, we don't want you to be upset. And Champlain shot him in the head. With all these different native groups gathered, it was time to organize exchanges of people. Now, there were a lot of young Frenchmen, young men, old boys, old boys, what am I saying? Teenage boys and young men whom Champlain wanted to send to all these different groups to become translators and help transport furs to his operations. This new profession would eventually be known as uh, the coureurs de bois, or runners of the woods. This was perhaps the origin of the stereotypical uh, French fur trapper living up with a native tribe somewhere, burly, wrapped in furs himself with a native wife. It started right about here. And basically, instantly, these young men found the lack of sexual repression among the natives, uh, refreshing. Bruce Trigger, famed historian Bruce Trigger, uh, calls these, uh, what, what happened next, sexual alliances. Basically, these young men went out, they became very friendly with natives, learned their languages, and engaged in activities with female natives, taking them on as wives, and essentially becoming integrated and adopted into native tribes. Whereas in France, they were usually soldiers, uh, coming from a lower class of men, no inheritance to their name, very little respect for their social rank, suddenly they're thrust into this world where they're this oddity, and they're a chain in the link to get their furs sold. And so French men who had a taste for the exotic would find this arrangement preferable, and native women who had a taste for the exotic would find this arrangement preferable. You know what I'm getting at. Historians also note this would be the beginning of the Métis, population, I believe I'm saying that right, which would be the French term for the mixing of the French and the natives, Métis, uh, similar to Spanish words you would hear apply to Latin America like mulatto and especially mestizo, each one of these terms just connotating a mixture of ancestry. And so despite the horrifying winter, full of conspiracy and death and dog-eating, the rest of the year had been wonderfully successful for Champlain. And now he would actually follow his orders in the fall of 1609 and return back to France, handing over Quebec to Pontgrave, the aforementioned burly sea Santa. Back in France in the early winter of 1610, Champlain presents the king of France with the head of a dead Mohawk warrior. But while at court, he learns some disturbing news. 
the knowledge of budding English colonies along the North American coast had finally reached France in Champlain's ears. Popham, which was founded in Maine and only lasted a year, in 1607 briefly overlapped with his colony in Port Royal. And it was scary for him to think they weren't that far apart. But even scarier was Jamestown. Because although it was still very small and fledgling, it had not fallen apart like Popham had or Port Royal. And while Quebec was founded in 1608, Jamestown was founded in 1607. Such things don't seem to matter to us today. But when these great nations would negotiate and war with one another, uh, the first time somebody set up a permanent, permanent settlement on a chunk of land was a very important thing to note. He also learned that the price of furs w was still outrageous, and that all of the enemies of Dumont, the man who owned the monopoly and who employed Champlain, had successfully made it so his one-year monopoly expired after one year. And so in 1610, there existed no monopoly over the fur trade in the St. Lawrence. Essentially, it was open season. Every French outfit would be legally allowed to participate. This is one of the first examples of many future examples of how Champlain's really a plate spinner. Whether he's in North America or France, wherever he is, things are going pretty good. He's spinning the plates. But far over on the other side, everything is starting to slow down and fall over. And he has to rush over there and start spinning those plates too. Champlain argues to Dumont that the operations should just continue anyway. He had set up enough alliances, created a reputation for himself, uh, created a settlement at a narrow in the St. Lawrence River where he could control the in and out of all the trade and that it was worth trying to keep this thing going. But with little promise that any of this would even still work without a monopoly, Champlain rushed back to Quebec in the spring of 1610. Once there, he very quickly reinforces the entire settlement, trying to brace from an attack potentially from the English, or maybe even from the Iroquois. Of course, eager to meet back up again with Champlain, the native groups start coming around. And Champlain sends out to live among the Huron, a young man by the name of Etienne Brule, who may have been with him as early as 1608, may have been one of the few survivors of that first winter. Etienne Brule will be an interesting character, so please keep him in mind, and not always a good character. The natives are visiting what is now Quebec City, but at the time would only be inhabited by a couple dozen men. Everything is a wooden structure. Exchanges are still made in beaver fur. That's, that's the currency as far as anyone is concerned. And with the exception of maybe a small garden that Champlain keeps, there's no tilled land, no growing of crops whatsoever. And despite their small numbers, the native allies once again come and demand that Champlain participate in warring with the Iroquois. Champlain notes that he really wanted to make a peace with the Iroquois. If, if all these native groups could just live peaceably, the furs obviously would flow more freely. But Champlain was learning, uh, much to his woe, that warring seemed to have been seasonal in this part of North America. This time, though, the Iroquois showed signs that they were beginning to adjust to the new European threat. When the war party reached the mouth of the Richelieu, not too far down it, or up it, I keep messing that up, there was a fort that the Iroquois had built. Clearly, they considered this territory, which is now in Quebec, Canada, to be their northern limit. And rather than shrink back from their first attack, they had actually advanced. The natives allowed the French to fire at the fort as long as they possibly could, until they ran out of powder. And yet the Iroquois were still there, not scared off this time. Of course, some dead, some wounded, but they were not retreating. 
many others would have left at this point. The powder's gone. And yet Champlain and the natives decided to storm the Iroquois fort, taking 15 captives and killing everyone else. The Iroquois too, the Mohawk especially, who were expected to guard the eastern door, uh, suffered huge losses from these two battles between 1609 and 1610. David Hackett Fisher, the wonderful historian David Hackett Fisher, he says that these two battles probably cost the Mohawk 150 to 250 fighting men, which would be, in his estimation at the time, 10 to 20% of the total Mohawk fighting force. Not completely devastating, but certainly a loss. As a result of this and Dutch trade in the Hudson, the Iroquois weren't raiding the St. Lawrence anymore. Wouldn't happen for a number of years to come. And so Champlain had achieved a state of semi-peace. David Hackett Fisher says a quasi-peace. Feeling victorious anyway, Champlain returned to Quebec, where he received word that King Henri IV had been assassinated. Rumored by some to be Champlain's real father, the king had been a lifelong benefactor to Champlain, giving him a pension at the age of 32. Champlain worked as a spy for him, as a royal geographer. He attended the king's court and was able to regale him with stories of faraway places that the king himself could never go. And often when things seemed to just about fall apart for Champlain, the king was always there to mend everything back together. Probably not his father, but certainly a father figure. And now he was gone. Champlain, without hesitation, would rush back to France. The St. Lawrence without monopoly, and France mourning a king who was stabbed to death by a Catholic extremist. We are now entering dark and uncertain times. We are also exiting this podcast episode. How do you like the view from that cliff? Please tune in to our next exciting episode of the Other States of America History Podcast. I'm Eric Giannis. Thank you for listening.